0: Well, good afternoon, everyone, those who are sitting here with us in Auditorium E and those folks who are watching from your computers. We're happy that you're all able to join us. My name is Deb Hastings. I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and um, again, we welcome you who are here and those of you who are watching from afar. I do have my typical accreditation announcements, so I will go through those quickly before introducing um, our... uh, our speaker. Uh, After the program, you will receive an email from the Center for Learning and Professional Development with a link to an online evaluation. Upon completion of the evaluation, your credit will be automatically posted to your online transcript. We do value your feedback regarding this and all our programs, and we really hope you will take a few minutes to complete the eval. If you're here, please be sure that you've signed in. You must attend at least 80% of the program in order to receive credit. For those viewing online, if you have any questions during the presentation, please email them to Judy Langhans, who's sitting here with us, at judith.m, as in Mary, dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. She will give the uh, questions to the speaker, and he will be able to share his responses with you and she will be monitoring throughout the presentation. Also, for those of you who are viewing online, we'd like you to email Judy within an hour of completion of the presentation, stating that you did participate in the activity, include your name, degree, and zip code, and she will register your attendance. There are instructions on how to access the online transcript by the sign-in sheet here, or for those who are viewing from afar, you can contact Judy directly for the instructions. We want you to know that neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity and no one refused to disclose. So at this time I would like to introduce our chief nursing officer, Dr. Gay Landstrom. To notice that, Dr. Gay Landstrom. For those of you who aren't aware, she did defend her PhD and she it's official. <laughs> Um she's our CNO and she will be introducing our special guest speaker today. Thank
1: you. Deb. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Well, it's, um, it's great to be able to introduce um, Wes Miller to you. Um, but before I do that, I do want to share just a few of my own thoughts about why I think this is a very important um, special nursing grand rounds. And I'm going to speak to the, the nurses in the audience, particularly here. You know, nursing is uh, a unique profession. We are... Um, given many things, when we receive that nursing license, we have the opportunity to come into people's lives um, to help them during some very special times, um, like the birth of a child, or some very challenging times for them, like the the a new medical diagnosis or nearing the end of life. We're given that, that permission to be in patients' lives. We're given access to all kinds of information that the average person on the street would have no access to. But we're given those privileges um, as part of a social contract. We have an obligation to do um, some things for society as a whole and our community in particular. We're uh, obliged to always think of what is best for our patient and to make our decisions around that. Um, We need to use our very best knowledge and always bring that to patient care. Um, We need to... practice ethically there are a whole series of things that are part of that contract but that contract is not just with the individual patient who might be in front of us in a bed or in a clinic or um... in their home during a home care visit it is with our entire community and with society as a whole and sometimes we as nurses forget the bigger obligation that we have, and that that contract with society. So I'm particularly um, pleased to be able to introduce Wes Miller to you, who is going to talk about an opportunity for nurses um... to be involved nurses and other care providers to be involved in something really special in our community and i've seen active nurses and retired nurses and and lots of other clinicians like respiratory therapists and others who have been involved in community preparedness community disaster relief community medical reserve corps um, in different parts of the country and um... and so i really i'm anxious for us to to strengthen our partnership um, between Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, and our community organizations. So Wes Miller is currently the Upper Valley Public Health Emergency Preparedness Coordinator. He's also the director, director of the Upper Valley Medical Reserve Corps. Wes has been involved in safety and emergency response activities for over 12 or 20 years. He has a great deal of experience. Prior to coming to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, he was safety and emergency manager at Northwestern Medical Center in St. Albans, Vermont. For four years, he chaired the Vermont State Hospital Emergency Preparedness Committee. And in addition to his experience as a firefighter, an EMT, and a technical rescue leader, he's participated in numerous courses, activities, and training with FEMA's Center for Domestic Preparedness, U.S. Homeland Security, and the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Chemical Defense. So we're really honored to be able to have you with us, Wes, and we're anxious to learn from you. Thanks for coming to DH. Thank
2: you very much, Jen. Well, thank you all and welcome. And based on the technology, uh, I guess that's it. Are there any questions? <laughs> let's see if we, oh, there we go. Okay, we're back. Um, so I, I appreciate you all coming out and uh, spending some time to, uh, to to hear a little bit more about We've got a couple of topics that we're, we're, we're that all sort of uh, work together, and I want to first sort of paint a picture of on a state and a sort of local regional level what really goes on in some of these larger events, these these uh, these larger crises. Um, so we'll uh, we'll we'll talk about that uh, for a bit. So. One of the objectives we have here is to be able to discuss the role of Upper Valley uh, municipalities and community partners during an event and also how that links uh, to the state. Um, We're also going to then talk a little bit about some concepts of personal preparedness and what can we do to... Make sure that we're ready and that our families are ready to deal with some of these things. Um, it's, It's always going to be a challenge, but there are certain things we can do that may make it somewhat less onerous by the time we get on the other side of whatever the event is. So those are important things to think about. The other thing that that does is if you feel comfortable about yourself and your family, that may then um, allow you to feel a little bit more free to then get involved in some of the organizations that would then be out helping others who have had uh, more significant impacts. So it all kind of melts together. So hopefully uh, we'll, uh, we'll uh, learn a little bit about each one of these things and um, look forward to uh, what, the, what we can get through today. So, um, First we'll talk a little bit about just the, the, the sort of state and regional preparedness concepts and how that works. So first I want to just talk about emergency planning. Now I, there's a, a number of folks that I know out there in the audience and you do a lot of work with the emergency management uh, group here and so you get that but I think on some level we all understand the concept of planning. and but. You know, why is this really important? I think when an event happens, we all have sort of some gut instincts. There's kind of a gestalt that kicks in, and we, you know, we think we know what to do. And that's great. That's a really important thing. But, you know, as the esteemed uh, Gary Larson pointed out one time, sometimes the initial reaction may not be the best one in the long run. So we may take action and find out, you know what, there might have been a different way we could have gone with that. There might have been. So let's think about this in advance and see if we can uh, come up with a plan that's going to put us on the other side in perhaps a little bit stronger position. So really what, what, what is emergency planning? Well, the emergency planning are the actions that we take in advance of an emergency to reduce the effects, to mitigate it, um, to in some cases we can do certain things that may even prevent certain types of um, events from occurring. So that's what the planning thing is about. So we want to be thinking in advance what can we do about that. Now. When we talk about emergency management overall, planning is a is a part of that. But we want to think about mitigation steps, preparedness steps, response steps, and then recovery, which is often the unlooked uh, the unlooked um, concept in, uh, in in terms of when people are working on these things. But it's a cyclic process. So by the time um, an event uh, happens and you're recover you're recovering, you know you really need to be thinking about what can we learn from this? Continual learning. So what are we gonna learn from this? What changes can we make? And how do we fit those changes back into our plans? So we're right back in to the uh, preparedness part of that, reworking our plans. Um, things that work smashingly, where else can we export that? How can we incorporate that to other areas of the institution or other parts of our plans? So continually learning, and that's why it's, a, it, it's really a cyclic process when we're doing the emergency management and planning. So mitigation, mitigation um, are actions that you can take to either eliminate or reduce the impact of an occurrence. So that might be in, in the photo there, uh, doing stream bank uh, reinforcement, so that uh, at times of uh, of high fast water, you're not going to have the same level of erosions. And during flooding, um, it might be that we use a certain chemical in our facility and. If that chemical has very hazardous properties, can we get rid of it altogether? Well, maybe not. Is there something else we can use that has less hazardous properties? OK, maybe there is. So we've mitigated that to a certain degree. Now, we still need to um, factor in what can still happen with, those, uh, with, with that other chemical, but we need to think about those. So we use an all hazards approach when we're doing any kind of planning in, in the mitigation phase. So we want to look at all the various things that can that can go wrong. We then want to take those and do what's called a hazard vulnerability analysis, and I know many of you have been involved in that. Every year the hospital does an HVA as part of the uh, as part of the Joint Commission uh, standards for emergency management. Uh, we do that out in the community as well. In fact, we just had our, our we, we just got that process started again for the for the next year. So, whereas you're focusing primarily on the inside the four walls of both the hospital and the uh, and the community based practices, um, we're looking at the community. more More holistically so from you know what's going on up in line and what's going down here how do we align ourselves more appropriately with um, with resources such as the hospital how can the hospital reach to us and be able to do things so when we look at this we want to take a much broader approach when we're talking about the community-based hazard vulnerability analysis So, the next step in the phase in the uh, preparedness uh, and management uh, process is preparedness. So, that involves a lot of different things. That involves when we're writing up plans. Okay, well, in order to implement those plans, are there additional equipment, or PPE, Ebola? You know, who, wh- wh- what are the things that could be going on? Well, if we've, now that we've got all that and we've got this nifty plan that's written, we've got to train people to it. So I know I'm sure there were a number of you that were involved in all the training for, uh, for the Ebola preparedness, the donning and the doffing, especially the do- doffing that is so absolutely critical in terms of trying to maintain uh, a safe environment for yourselves and others. Um, But then you have to exercise it. So the hospital did uh, an an exercise a few weeks ago. A lot was learned from that. Plans will be rewritten. We'll come out on the other side of it even stronger. So that's all part of the preparedness uh, side of the house. The response is fairly self-explanatory. We're going to take those plans and we're going to implement them, bearing in mind that no plan is ever perfectly written and things always get squirrely. Um, but at least we've got, some, we've got a place to start, and that's the thing. Plans are sort of a serving suggestion only, like on the side of the uh, cereal box, you know, artist rendition, serving only, suggestion only. Um, and then after response, we have recovery. How are we going to get back to normal or as close to normal as we can? Because for some people, for some institutions, for homeowners and businesses, sometimes the aftermath, it's going to be a new normal. It's not going to be exactly what it was before. And we have to be prepared to, 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 to consider that. But the, the recovery phase should really be starting you know, early on, uh, even during the response phase. Because, all right, you know, we've got, the, we've, got, we've got flooding. We've got to get this neighborhood. We've got to evacuate. I mean, we've got the shelter set up. We move the people over there. Okay. But you know what? As soon as the waters recede, now we've got nine inches of mud in the roadways. We've got trees and limbs all down. And we can't get the people out of the shelter until we get that taken care of. So those are, that recovery portion needs to be started fairly early on. So even when you're in active response phase, you need to have some folks thinking about recovery. It's never too early to be thinking about that. So when we're thinking about that, um, we do need to generate these plans. But uh, actually, one of, one, of the, one, of our, one of the great minds uh, in, in, the U, in the U.S. Uh, once quipped that plans are nothing and planning is everything. And that was uh, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. And what he was getting at with that is, again, as I said, we can't write a perfect plan. Okay, but the process that we go through to generate that plan, to come up with those steps that we think we're going to take, that gets our mind in motion. That gets us to consider different things. And that is absolutely irreplaceable. So the process of planning is really by far one of the most important things. Now, it is really important to have that plan, too, because when it's, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning, they call me, I'm still in my footsie pajamas, and I've got to try to think about, you know, what are we going to do here? Again, I've got that serving suggestion. But whatever we plan for is probably not going to look exactly like that. So you have to be nimble. You have to be make sure you've got other real smart people in the room with you. But the, uh, the, the, the planning is really where you get the most bang for your buck. I mean, that, that was also uh, fairly well illustrated by a, uh, a, another quote in terms of everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, That is by the esteemed Mr. Mike Tyson. Um, And, again, it just kind of illustrates that things are going to change, and we've got to be ready for it. So now in the state, when events happen, a a disaster in the state, um, the Department of of Safety underneath them is the Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. And they're kind of the go-to resource. So what they're going to do is they're going to set up an emergency operations center. OK, and our, an emergency operations center is is a coordination and a resource tool, really um, here in the hospital. You set up essentially the same thing, hospital command center that's happening here locally. But so on the state level, um, they would be setting up an emergency operation uh, center. Now, the Department of Health and Human Services has a, a group underneath it called the Emergency Services Unit, and they'll get into play in most disasters, um, because they deal with mass care, they deal with sheltering. Um, they've got a lot of resources that they can bring to the table. So that group is gonna come into play almost any time they have a state EOC set up. And, and actually, I gotta I got to say too, the uh, New Hampshire Emergency Operations Center is really a tremendous facility. Uh, being in an environment, those of you who've, who've uh, you know, uh, worked in Instant Command and other things, the environment that you place yourself into really can help or hinder your ability to work effectively and they 've got a phenomenal uh, operation center uh, down in uh, down in Concord um, for folks to work out of um, so if this disaster is going on um, the if it's a statewide thing there could be um, two hundred and thirty four municipal EOCs set up now that's a little bit of a curious model to me in that the way they have the state level but because we don't have really tight you know county government or anything like that, but the New Hampshire model is that each town would then reach directly to that operation center for assistance. Um, I haven't seen this in, in, in action yet, um, but I can imagine that there could be certain challenges with that many you know individual nodes trying to go all up, potentially at the same time up to the state level but nonetheless that's the way they have it uh, have it set up here for um, certain types of disasters. Now, if you notice that ridiculously long title I had did include Public Health Emergency Preparedness Coordinator, so in the event of a public health emergency, there's a slightly different approach. So we're still going to have that, uh, that upper level stuff feeding into the Emergency Operations Center, but then there's the Division of Public Health Services, which we usually just refer to as Department of Health, that's going to come into play there. There's, uh, they're, they're, their unit is actually called Emergency uh, 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 Emergency Support Function Eight. Um, there's 14 different ESFs. Is everything from transportation to agriculture to whatever that could be uh, could be involved. But so they're going to get involved with the uh, and have a seat at the table in the emergency operations center. But in order to simplify things, as opposed to having every town that may be dealing with something related to um, a public health issue. The Division of Public Health Services has created 13 regions in the state, so 13 public health networks. Um, and underneath those networks, they, each network would set up um, something called a MACE that we'll talk about a little bit more. But So now we have these 13 units that are kind of doing their own thing and reporting to a single group. So the ability to manage something like this, it becomes a whole lot less uh, confusing, I would think, in the Emergency Operations Center by doing that. Now, I'll also tell you that... Uh, here in the upper valley region they really have found that this works so much better chances are for just about any kind of emergency that's the model that we're probably going to go to and um, we'll, we'll talk more about the setup of that uh, that, uh, that um, entity that MACE entity in, uh, in in just a moment but so that's how it's going to happen in kind of the upper level and that's how we as a region will be reaching up to the state for different types of resources that um, that we need or if we have resources to offer it would uh, go through that so that that uh, arrow off the green bubble there that really should be a, that should be a two headed arrow that's a that's a very back and forth kind of um, kind of relationship um, so and, and it is just a little map of the uh, of the various uh, regions uh, that we uh, have here in the state the thirteen different regions so Within each of those regions, um, in order to start to get our hands around what are some of the issues that could go on, and we talked about doing you know, HVAs and stuff, we've got something called the Regional Coordinating Council, more acronyms, uh, the RCC, and that's a collection of... A lot of uh, quite a variety of different types of organizations, but it's everything from fire and EMS to senior care. Uh, a lot of social service organizations are part of that because, especially when you start to think about these wide-scale emergencies and the functional needs issues that are out there, and how to be effectively serving and helping those populations, um, it, it really takes a lot of work. So you need to have representation from all sorts of different groups. But this is sort of the regional planning group. The uh, regional Coordinating Council, that's what the group that's doing the HVA uh, currently, and that's the group that uh, works on writing plans and stuff for the area. So that's a, that's, a, that's a really important group. Now, in the event that there is an, uh, an emergency that uh, or a disaster that happens, that's when the MACE is set up. So the MACE would be a subset of those of those uh, groups, um, and they would then come together to form an, a, 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 a team that would manage things much like you do here in the hospital, in a uh, in the hospital command center. And we'll look to those people and say, who do we need? Because anytime we're dealing with, uh, with with emergencies, I always I always urge people to think, uh, work on the concept of critical few. You want to have all the people you need, but you don't want to have. Extra people that you don't, because it can can, can, uh, can uh, complicate things sometimes. So the concept of critical few, kind of akin to you know the kiss, the keep it simple uh, uh, statement, something to think about. So we wouldn't necessarily want to have represent- representation from all those groups for every single event. So we're going to look at the event, understand what the needs are, what resources do we need to get through it, and make sure that we've got the appropriate people there in the room, much like you folks do here when you're setting up incident command. So there's always a leader of that of the, of, of the MACE. That could be a number of different people. It's typically going to be uh, Chief Christopoulos or maybe Chief McMillan um, in the uh, you know from uh, from Hanover. Now. Underneath them, they will have a group of folks that are going to support them in a number of different ways, including potentially public information officer, security or safety officer, the liaison officer. They would be the person who would be linking with the hospital and other state agencies. Um, technical specialists, those come into play where if it was, you know, the spring snowstorm from and we got 24 inches of wet, slushy snow on the roof of all the buildings. We may want to have a structural engineer in there. So, whatever the event is, there may be some subject matter expert that is going to be really important to have at that very high level of the decision making chain. Is this setup starting to look like anything familiar, like you talk about the hospital uh, a bit? Nodding heads, What, 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 what are we starting to look at there? We're starting to look at an incident command structure. It's ICS. And it's just, you know, this the, the system is just, you use it in, in all sorts of layers and in many places. So, um, and much like you folks, there are finance considerations. A lot of that happens after the fact, but sooner or later you need to be thinking about that. I did one drill um, uh, with, uh, with the, the city of St. Albans, and um, it involved um, the, the, the town hall being compromised, and access to it would not be available for quite some time. But when we started to talk about the recovery phase and, the, and sending out all the bills and stuff, they realized oh, well, the only place we have checks and additional purchase order information is in the safe in the basement of the building. So now they have actually a, uh, a, secure, a safety box um, at one of the local banks where they keep additional stuff. But, you know, it, 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 it's important to really think through things on that level. But, then you know, we also have our logistics group, and they're the getters. So if we've, you know, if I need, a, if I need a, a dozen chainsaws, and I'm going to need some, uh, some four-ton dump trucks and some backhoes that have, uh, that have thumbs on the bucket so they can pick up these large logs and put them in those trucks, they're the ones that are going to find those for me and get those to me. Planning, they're the ones that they come up with, the, with, with how we're going to approach this. What are we going to do? Um, they're the main focus of gathering situational awareness and being aware of all the different components that are going on. Once they come up with a plan and it's, uh, it's approved through the uh, through the MACE manager and all, then that goes to operations. And so operations are the ones that are physically doing things. Are now in a lot of times, um, in this regional level. The operations may be primarily a coordination unit because, as I said, you're still maybe having individual towns setting up emergency operation centers of their own. We, you know, don't tell them not to. We don't have authority. They can do what they want. But hopefully that information is going to be fed in to a central thing so they can say, all right, well, you know, Lyme, we realize you, you, you don't have anywhere near the level of damage, but you have these resources. What about us bringing those down and helping out, you know, Piermont with those? So they're kind of the coordination entity. Um, If there were shelters set up or POD, point of distribution, that's a mass prophylaxis uh, site, um, those type of operations would be feeding and managed directly out of the op section in uh, in the mace. So this is a very familiar structure, and it's familiar because it works. That's what you do in the hospital here. In fact, you had ICS stood up for what, about three and a half months? (laughs) Uh, so in any event, um, so it's really important. So it should look familiar. Hopefully, everyone, uh, ever, everyone uh, recognized that uh, fairly soon off. So, so that's sort of how things would be managed and organized um, within the region and then within the state level and how that's going to interact. So now, in, in addition to getting rid of my dry mouth, so now I want to talk a little bit about personal preparedness. What can we do as individuals and as families? And that can even be extended into um, if you're involved with civic groups and other, other things like that. But what are some of the things we want to think about on our own to, uh, to help minimize some of what we're going to go through and uh, to, to, to help us um, work through the problems that occur during, uh, during these events? So FEMA did a, a, a survey. Uh, they do one annually. Um, but uh, when they they ask a lot of different questions, and then those questions kind of get uh, kind of get thrown into various buckets. But when they talk to different people, um, and they said, you know, you know, the questions indicated, you know, that. There are some folks out there who really think about this a lot. They're they're reevaluating their plans. They're making sure that the phone numbers are, are, are correct. They're looking at their home preparedness kits. You know, it's really part of the way they do business on an ongoing basis. But unfortunately, that's only about 14% of the population that responded to the survey. Um, lots of folks have done a little bit. And they're aware of certain, maybe they're aware of certain hazards in their community. They know how to get certain information. Yeah, I got some stuff in my basement. Oh, I got a big pantry. You know, we, could, uh, we could deal with that. So they're, they're working on it. They've got some stuff going on. We've got about 20% of the survey that uh, said yes to that. Um, about 18%, yeah, it's on my mind. I've been thinking about it. I know a little bit about it. I just got to get around to it. And then we've got the largest sli- slice of the pie. It's like, what's that? big deal, or it's not going to help anyways. And I I firmly disagree with that. You know, it really really can make a difference for you and or for others um, if we think about some of this in advance. So FEMA talks about four primary actions that they would like individuals to take in terms of um, helping make sure that they are ready to respond. And a lot of this is really, you know, I want you to think about the term resiliency, because all these things hurt, they're not pleasant, it's gonna be painful along the way, but when you get towards the end, you know, during that process and towards the end, have you done things that can make you bounce back a little bit quicker, that make it a little less painful for you and a little less trying? So resiliency is kind of what we're talking about here. But one of the first things they say is they want people to be informed, okay? So do you know what your local community risks are? Right. Do you know where shelters are in your community? You know, do you know if that you know that nondescript gray building down the street is a uh, is a uh, metal plating building, and they've got uh, they, they, they've, they've got a thousand gallons of sulfuric acid in that uh, drum out back? You know, it's good to know those things. Um, being informed as well is how do you find out about uh, how do you find out about what's going on in the in terms of events. The second thing FEMA talks about wanting people to do is to make a plan, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, in a moment. But having a household emergency plan and making sure that all the members of your family, uh, both uh, nuclear and extended families, are familiar with that. Excuse me, uh, building a kit. Put together certain things that could help you out in the event of either you're stuck in your house for some period of time or you get a knock on the door and it's the police saying you have 15 minutes to vacate the premises. Those things do happen fortunately they're few and far between, but that could happen in this area um, and then the last thing is getting involved and uh, we'll 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 talk more about uh, some options for getting involved as we uh, as we move forward here so so the first thing they talked about was being informed. Um, and during the surveys, and unfortunately they keep changing the questions on the surveys, so you don't see, uh, you don't see uh, the, the results uh, for the same, uh, same years sometimes in some of these uh, graphics. But um, folks in terms of being familiar with their local hazards, well, you know, there does seem to be a little bit of a trend upward on that, so that's a good thing, but still it's less than half the people. Um, familiar with alert and warning systems now everyone always thinks about you know you're watching that awesome show and all of a sudden you get that annoying beep in it um, that's, one, that, that, that's one thing, but there's a lot of other things that we can do in order to be informed, both that something is happening, something's on its way, something has just happened, or it's already happened, and how do we keep abreast of the progress of that so we know what the potential impacts are, we know when it might be safe for us to um, go home or take a different course of action. So a couple of things that, uh, that I want to suggest that you can uh, think about. Are, there's a website readynh.gov, and actually, with that website, if you go to that, oops, okay. There's all, Ready.gov is the federal version of that, but um, when we go to that, we can. There's a lot of different types of information that we can find on that site. The New Hampshire one, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good site. It's worth, uh, it's worth checking out. Um, they've got some different uh, topical areas in terms of floods and storms, um, but so there's some, there's some useful information there. The Ready.gov is essentially the same thing, but the federal site. A uh, good bit of redundancy there, but still certainly, uh, certainly worthwhile to know about. The Red Cross. I mean, what, what can you say about the Red Cross? Uh, one of the most amazing organizations ever. Um, on part of their site, they're, uh, they're, they're, if you go to the redcross.org slash prepare, you can find lots of information about lots of different types of, uh, of uh, crises that could occur. They've got lots of different apps on there that you can put on your phone. They've got tornado apps. They've got earthquake apps. They have winter storm. They've got some really, really good things that you can, uh, w- that you can put on your phone. So yes, you may need to you know, take angry birds off to fit these other things on there. But nonetheless, it's worthwhile stuff to consider. Um, how else do you get informed? You're, does everyone know they have every municipality has an emergency management director? Everyone does. Some of them are more involved, more active, more aware than others, but they are a tremendous source of information. And they should be able to help you out with what does that building down the road does? Where are our community shelters? What is the evacuation route if we got to buy out of the area? Those are important things. They're the ones that can help you with your local, uh, with your local um, uh, plans. Um, and this this goes for folks if they're from the Vermont side as well. I mean, all these things are are uh, have a similar uh, have, a, have a similar. Uh, um, Agency or a group that will be working with them. Um, New Hampshire Alerts, NH Alerts. So, for those of you with cell phones, there is a tremendous app um, that uh, you can go to, in, uh, NH Alerts. And if you if you download it, what it does is you can select what type of events you'd like to know about. I mean, you may not want to get small craft warnings, but you could if you want. Um, you can select everything to do with high winds, winter storms. Um, is it only high winds or only gale winds? I want to find out. So a lot of, a lot of. Parsing you can do with that, and then you can set the set your radius in terms of how how big a distance around me do I want my phone to start beeping if this happens. Um, but it's a really a great great tool to have. Now the other thing that's neat about that is the backbone of New Hampshire alerts is a system called Code Red, which is a national system, um, and actually NH Alerts is really just a front page that's that's pretty up with New Hampshire information. But if you sign up for uh, NH alerts, and you're up in Burlington, Vermont, and there's, there, there's gale winds that are going to be coming through or you know, a tropical storm or something like that, it doesn't care that you're not in New Hampshire. It says, I know you're in Burlington, and here's what's happening in your area. So it's a really nifty, really powerful uh, tool. Um, if anyone out there is, uh, is, is a Vermont resident, uh, if you just go to code red, which is the national site, you can then use your zip code, put it in. And it's really all the same thing eventually. But it's a phenomenal app, and it's a, it's a very, uh, very helpful thing. Um, and just uh, this just happened fairly recently, just to, just, just to let folks know, um, you can now text 911. Now they only want that in the event that it's an emergency where you making noise or potentially giving away a location or something could further compromise your situation, but you can do that now. So I know the, the hospital's done a lot of work with active shooter drills. Um, there's a perfect example of when you would want to text 911. Okay, so we don't just do that to ask how the traffic is, but if we've got a, a serious situation, it's a great option to know about. So, just thought I would share that with you as well. But so, some of the many ways that we can be informed, um, FEMA told us to, uh, you know, suggested that we make a plan. So, what are we, what are we, and fairly low, fairly low percentages on this. So, what are we talking about when we are talking about making a plan? Well, we're talking about something that you can't really read. Let's let's break that down a little bit. Um, And a lot of this has to do with communications. At the end of every drill or exercise you've, you've been through, what's always sort of the number one corrective action is usually got to do with communications. But with family plans, that's what a lot of it is about as well. Um, and by the way, out on the table here, we have uh, we've we've got copies of of a, of a template uh, for this. Also, there's a uh, sheet there that you can put your name and email down. Uh, if you're interested in more information about this stuff, I can send you these templates electronically. There's another thing I'll show you in a moment. I can send them to you electronically as well. Um, but so you want to have the uh, you know just the basic information. As I said, lots of contact information. You want to make sure that uh, that's all there. I, I like to suggest people keep this on their refrigerator, You know, hold it up there with the local pizza joint magnet that we all have on our, uh, on our refrigerator. But you know, we may not be home. We may end up having responders, uh, the you know, fire department or something showing up. And if they find this there, we, we may not have even started there, this is really helpful in them tracking you down to let them know what goes on. So having these things available and having all those numbers are really important. If you've got kids put a copy of it inside their lunchbox or in the pocket of their backpack. They should always have this. Emergency meeting locations you want to make sure you're specific so if uh, if, there, if there's a if something happens to the house we're going to meet at the neighbor well is it the Smiths or the browns or is it Timmy's best friend who's five or six houses down the road make sure you're really specific about that so it may just be something that's very local to your home so it may just be a neighbor is fine if it's your kind of town if it' if it's your community or your neighborhood you want to make sure you've got someone that's fairly close by you know uh, that uh, in the next town over or something and everyone knows that That's where we're going to go because after these events, whether it's a small-scale community thing or a large regional thing, um, reunification after these is really difficult. And so that's why this becomes so powerful, because if any, everyone ends up at the same place or is going to be calling the same place, then the ability, you may still not be able to physically connect, but at least if you're able to find out that, OK, Kimmy's OK. He's in the, he's in the community center shelter. I'm on the Vermont side of the river. They are not going to let us uh, cross, but at least I know where he is, and he's OK. And now he knows where mommy is, too. So it's really important, that power of communication. In addition to that, I want you to think about choosing someone who lives out of state as, as a communication hub because when you look at these regional and community events, a lot of times it's the local circuits that get shut down, but the long-distance circuits may not be. So you may not be able to call from Hanover to Lebanon, but you may well be able to call Aunt Sarah down in, uh, down in Connecticut. So if you're able to do that, again now Timmy's in one shelter, you're across the other side of the river, and then you know, the, the older gal Cindy is in college in Colorado, she can't call your house, she can't get your cell phone, all those lines are jammed. But if everyone knows to call that single out of state Uh, person, there is certainly a likelihood that you may be able to make contact and then that person can serve as the information conduit and let them know, mom's okay, she's over in Vermont, not going to be able to get across the river for a couple hours, you know, that sort of thing. So that outside, out-of-state contact can be a really important important, uh, thing to think about. Just local hazards, you know, if there's any uh, you know, special medical things, local hazards. If you can tell the fire department as they're rushing onto your property that the uh, propane tank is in the southwest corner, they're going to kiss you. That's important information for them to know, and they're, they're really going to appreciate that. Um, community evacuation routes, have that there on the piece of paper, because you're going to find out about it. If you put it down here, that's great, but you're not going to think about it again until someone tells you you need to get out. And if it 's written down somewhere, then you 've got a much much better likelihood of following the plan because those do make a difference uh, actually, down in Boston, a number it was about six years ago, but uh, they they, they realized that because Boston and Cambridge had not spoken to each other when doing their plans they had everyone was supposed to get off on of memorial drive cross the bridges get on a storo drive boston had everyone on store drive crossing the bridges going over to get on memorial drive so uh, the coordination of these things is a pretty important thing but know, know what those evacuation routes are where communication where uh, community shelters are those sorts of things really important so that's a family pl- that's a that, that that's a one example of the many types of things you might put on a family emergency plan but it's important stuff because again when things are popping really quick it's harder to recall some of this, and as I say, a copy of it goes in uh, Timmy's lunchbox, and you know, keep a copy in your glove box, that sort of thing. It can become a very powerful tool. So building a kit, an emergency preparedness kit, well, what is that going to mean? That's going to mean all sorts of different things for different people, but you want to make sure that in your home you've got um, at least a gallon of water per day for everybody. OK, because we I'm down in Grantham. We have power outages all the time. Um, you know, so the uh, when I was up in Vermont, we were on a well. So no power, no water. Um, so you want to make sure you have some some reserves of that food. We all, we all think about, yeah, I've got plenty of food in my in my pantry and all. But think about things. Do you have things that worst case scenario, if you just had to open them up and eat them, you could. Now, I probably have not eaten, dicky more beef stew since I was in Boy Scouts. However, I do keep a couple cans of it around because as much work as it might be, you can open that up, eat that cold, and you're going to do just fine. So sort of think about certain things like that that really involve little to no preparation. Um, those might not be the things you typically have in your pantry. Um, so... Uh, Some some basic uh, medical and first aid supplies you want to have in there. Um, Some clothing and bedding, maybe ready to go to if you're going to have to leave, bringing sleeping bags. Um, have that sort of stuff ready. Basic tools, uh, you know, just a, just a wrench in case you you've got to shut off the gas on the on your way out of the house. Uh, that could do, that could you know mean the difference between uh, your your house uh, being completely lost or not. Um, you know, just uh, some various things. And again, I've got a list um, that's uh, out on the table there. And please feel free to grab one. And, and again, if you uh, if you want to give me your email address out there, I will send these to you. Um, And then special items. And that first one I think is really important that uh, uh, copies of important family documents. If we if we think about it and if we make copies of things like if we have a deed to the house, I can't I don't know if I'll ever actually get the deed to my house. um, But uh, my cars, yes. Um, And uh, inventories of valuables um, or even better yet, photos of your valuables. If you've got that stuff and that's in your your bucket or backpack or whatever it is you put this stuff in. And when you leave the house, heaven forbid, it turns out that there's a catastrophic event and your house is not not there anymore. Now you've got to go to the insurance company and start to prove to them that, yeah, well, you know, here's a picture of that Queen Anne Hutch with Etna's uh, fine china in it right there. It helps bolster your case. So the idea of titles, insurance, uh, insurance policies, um, uh, 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 for, uh, for a lot of folks, the, the importance of having a medication lists in there. I mean, think of how many folks you're dealing with and you ask them what medications they're on. You know, a lot of folks are not real good uh, historians and don't really know what they have, or they don't know what the, uh, what, what, you know, is, is it 10 milligrams or was it 5 milligrams? So having that information there is a really important thing. So some of that documentation to have in your kit I think is a very, very important and powerful option for you to have. And then getting involved. I mean, you can see the numbers here about folks that are sort of involved before something happens and the ones that say, well, yeah, I'd be willing to get involved when it does. They're fairly low, but, you know, that's not surprising. But the more ready we are as an individual, the better prepared we are, the more confident we feel that we as an individual and our families are going to weather this as best as possible then that's going to make us more likely to be uh, willing to extend ourselves and say, okay, what can I do to help pay it forward a little bit, get out there in the community and help them. So with that in mind, how do you get involved? Now, there are so many amazing groups out there. The Red Cross Disaster Services, um, uh, the Upper Valley Strong. Uh, there's, there's so many great groups out there. There's no shortage of them. But as part of the disclosure things, I got to say that Medical Reserve Corps, I'm the director for, so that's the only one I'm going to talk about, OK? So hopefully this may entice a few folks. So Medical Reserve Corps seems to be one of the better kept secrets in the, uh, in, in the country. It is a national organization. And its mission to is improve health and safety of communities um, by organizing medical volunteers. Okay, that's pretty broad. But, uh, but let, let's talk about things a little bit more specifically. It got started after 9-11. Okay, because there were so many volunteers that showed up now they in in many cases they didn't really have a way of organizing spontaneous volunteers, so that's just a general management kind of issue um, but furthermore, when you had just the streams of EMts and nurses and stuff that were coming over from Connecticut and from New Jersey that said, I'm here, what can I do?" they' were like,." Hold your breath, be right with you. It's really hard to integrate people if you cannot, if you, if their credentials have not been validated in advance. So that's one of the things that uh, we make sure happens. So after 9-11 in his 2002 State of the Union address, um, George Bush... Proposed a number of things, a lot of general community service type uh, type things, but he also then linked a couple of existing programs, the Freedom Corps and the Citizens Corps, together to create a much broader umbrella. That then came up with a number of a couple of new organizations, such as the Medical Reserve Corps and. Uh, um, the CERT teams, community emergency response teams. Now, we don't have a CERT team in our area, um, and but that's okay because the the medical reserve corps can help uh, can help bolster and serve some of those functions as well. So. How do communities benefit from a Medical Reserve Corps? Again, it's that resiliency thing. The more we can do on our own, the better off we're going to be, because especially if it's a statewide thing or even a a multi-region thing, it may be a while before we see any help. So just like Joint Commission wants you to be considering the the, the, uh, 72 to 96-hour window concept, Doesn't mean you have to be able to do everything and stay in your house for, you know, stay in the hospital for that long. But if you can't, what do you do? But so anyways, resiliency, really important. We can help out with that um meet identified health uh, gaps and uh and that might be um we have folks help us out with uh I, one of the things I, I organize in the fall are uh public uh, public um school flu clinics so much like you've got uh you know 5000 people running through your uh, your free clinics here uh, we take uh we take uh, folks out into the all 16 of the public schools that are in uh, the upper valley district and um and we do uh, immunizations there. MRC was a big help uh, with that. Um, bolstering uh, public health and emergency response infrastructures, things like pods and uh, alternative care sites. I'll mention those again in a moment. Um, and just giving folks an opportunity to get involved. It's, a, it's really a pretty powerful group. Um, there's no... Typical MRC, I would say, in that the extent of the mission can vary. Some MRCs are set up that it's only if something happens. If it hits the fan, we will be there, and that's fine. Other MRCs have really broadened the mission in terms of doing um, trying trying to do just public awareness campaigns. Actually, we had a we had a booth down at the uh, home show, so I was uh, just down at the home show for uh, for the next uh, for the last uh, three days. So if anyone wants to wants to know where they can get a good deal on uh, on pavers and landscape. I'll set you up after the uh, after the discussion, but um, they, but there, there's a broad array of things that uh, the MRCs might do. But what they all do do is they have an organizational structure for managing volunteers, and they know the volunteers in advance. So when the MRC is asked to assist with something, anyone who's associated with that, we can we know how to immediately integrate them to the. To, to meet the needs of the event as well as to take advantage of their skill sets, be that they're a respiratory therapist, an RN, or they can drive a backhoe. All those things are really important. So members are pre-identified, they're screened and they're credentialed annually through the state um, so that we know that, uh, that that everything's up to date, and we do a lot of training to prepare the members to, uh, to be ready. Um, I to jump through some of these, but there it's really so as I say it started in two thousand and two um, there w- there were about six thousand volunteers that uh, only uh, only three years later participated uh, with uh, in Katrina and Rita um, two thousand and six so so four years into this there so are five hundred units nationwide. Remember I mentioned this is really one of the best kept secrets um, but uh, two thousand and eight, there were more hurricane response this one this one i 'm really proud of this one. There were 50,000 MRC uh, folks involved in H1N1 response. Part of that was planning. A lot of that was community awareness. Obviously, the amount of vaccine that was available was fairly limited, but there were also lots of clinics that were um, staffed in or staffing was augmented by MRC members. So there were a lot of, uh, a lot of folks out during that. Um, they just kind of changed things a little bit. But so how about this, 1,000 units today across the country and in, uh, in all the U.S. territories, and over 200,000 volunteers. Who knew, right? And uh, I will say personally, I don't know more than half a dozen of those 200,000. But so this is what it would look like if you put together a, uh, a map. But they do have units down in, in Kwan, in American in Samoa. Actually, the American Samoa unit recently did a lot of public education and house-to-house um, surveying for uh, chikungunya. Because they, 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 they did have some. So interesting stuff that uh, that, that, that they get involved with. But uh, when we look at the makeup of the different units, we do see a fairly uh, a fairly predominant share of that are, uh, are females. And for those who know about the MRC, a lot of people think that it's all retired people. And that's not the case. 44% of the folks involved are between 36 and 55. So uh, we do have a lot of really powerful, um, important uh, members who are our retirees as well, but that's not what it is. These are people who have made a decision that they wanna get involved and be able to pay things forward for their community. So these aren't people that are just looking, oh, I have nothing else to do, what am I going to do? These are people that have made a decision, a commitment in their life to say, somehow I'm going to fit this in. We've all got more going on than we want, but we all always prioritize and we make decisions about what are we going to fit in. So most of the people that are involved in this have made that decision. this just shows that you've got uh, units that size everywhere. I think it's I think New York City is up to seventy eight hundred people. To um, in in regions with less than hundred thousand, um, a typical a typical size is fifty. Now that's not really enough to do some of the things that we'd like to do, um, but that's th- those are fairly uh, fairly typical numbers. So wh- what what types of people get involved? when you look at this, the uh, the highest percentage of folks are nurses and that's a, that's, a, that's a tremendous thing. Um, the next highest number are non-medical folks, because in order to pull off any kind of clinic, the number of people you need to have that are doing the setup, that are doing the registration, that are shuttling the supplies back and forth, that are out in the parking lot directing traffic, a lot of people it takes to be able to do these things. So we've got lots of people who are not medical uh, involved in this. And you just see other uh, other things in terms of EMTs and physicians and paramedics and a lot of different uh, folks that are, that are involved. So. Um, we do training, preparedness activities, public health stuff, the administrative, I get stuck with all that. I hate that 17%, but um, there's a good bit of stuff, paperwork I need to do. And then maybe 9% emergency response, which actually surprised me. That was uh, that, that I, 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 That's a little larger than I thought it might have been, but when you look across the country, there are things going on at almost any given time where uh, MRC units are actually out there. So, in the Upper Valley Unit, we, uh, we became a unit in, uh, in 2009. Um, we have a fairly broad mission in terms of, in addition to medical stuff, we really want to do some public education work and other types of things. Now, we are one of, I think, three units in the country that is cross-border. So. Um, The LEPC 12 and actually part of LEPC 3 over in Vermont are also areas that we both draw membership from as well as uh, would work to serve. The upper valley is really unique, I mean you you don't, You go north of Lyme, and there's no towns that do anything together across the border. Same with if you go south of, uh, you know, south of Pyramont. It it doesn't happen. But up here, there's phenomenal cooperation between the Vermont and the New Hampshire sides of the river. So our uh, our, uh, MRC is very unique in that. Um, we do a lot of training and exercises, personal preparedness campaigns. Now, point of dispensing. Um, so we do have plans. So in the event that there is some kind of pandemic flu outbreak, obviously the hospital itself is going to be a huge player in that. But we've got so many people in the community, we don't want the catchment area of 49,000 people to come to the hospital. So we would set up a pod at, uh, at Lebanon High School. And the idea is, you know, putting people through that so we can, uh, we, we 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 can do the mass prophylaxis distribution there. Um, Just general sheltering operations will help the Red Cross with those. We can stand them up separately or in conjunction with the Red Cross. Alternative care site, this is, this is a, an interesting thing, and we've got a ways to go to, to, to really be able to say this is reality, but um, the, the various areas for, on a federal level are asked to be able to stand up an alternative care site, which is a low-acuity care facility, which is separate from the hospital. Sometimes you're incorporated in the hospital, but the idea is if there's a huge surge event and you need to decompress. If you've got that person who's day two post-op and just needs, uh, just, just needs uh, uh, observation in fluids or something like that, can we p- move them to somewhere where they can get that care to free up that bed for someone who's of higher acuity? So there, there are plans in place for the, for the area. We'd use Leverone Fieldhouse um, to set up these 50-bed uh, low-acuity care sites. Um, we also have equipment to have half of those beds uh, be able to deliver low-flow uh, oxygen as, as well. So so there's a lot more work working with, uh, with uh, Jim Alexander and some of the other folks here about how can we really make this a uh, reality. Now, obviously, in that one, the hospital is taxed. So the, you know, whether or not people are available, eh, that's starting to get to be an issue. But these other things, including pods, that happens before it gets busy at the hospital. So just because you're an employee here doesn't mean that you know, oh, we're calling in all the nurses right away. That's not, that's not going to be happening in the vast majority of these cases. Um, we do a lot of uh, just community outreach stuff and do things at the, you know, we have first aid at, that we do at the Prouty, uh, at, the, uh, at the paddle power event that West Central Behavioral Health does. Uh, we're out in the rescue boats along with some of the fire department uh, folks, as well as doing first aid things. So we do a lot of different, uh, different uh, things there. Um, but just uh, some shots of some of, the, some of the things we've done. That's actually uh, that top left one that was actually uh, setting up um some of the oxygen stuff for the uh, alternative care site See, Jim Jim Alexander, he he claims he was doing something down on the floor there. I like to think that he was bowing to me. Um, But in any event, uh, we've got uh, a lot of things that we've been doing. So there's some very general, fairly easy uh, requirements. If uh, folks are interested in becoming members, but there is an application, that's where we do the initial uh, validation of your credentials. Um, We do issue uh, badges. Uh, You've got to get registered in a couple of uh, call systems. So that way, we can put out uh, uh, these call down alerts uh, fairly easily. Got some specific training we're going to do. This is just a list of some of the things we have coming up in terms of some of the events we're going to be supporting and some of the exercises and things that are, that are going to be going on. So there's a fair amount going on. And it is a group that you know members are going to maybe be able to do one or two of those during the course of this period. But that's fine. We know everyone can't do everything. But the idea of as long as we've got a cadre that's large enough, we'll be able to support uh, uh, more and more things. We do have a meeting the coming this Wednesday. Everyone, I'd like you to tell me, what do you have going on Wednesday this evening? We'll start over here. No, that's OK. Um, but in any event, we do have a meeting coming up. Uh, we can let folks know uh, uh, when, when meetings are. We're actually going to be doing some pod training over at uh, the actually, Department of Health over in, uh, over in White River Junction. Um, and my contact information. Um, I am I am a Dartmouth Hitchcock employee. If you're looking for me, I am one of those snotty first initial middle name people, so you got to look under D to find that. But um, and as well as the unit uh, can be contacted uh, through uh, through our Gmail account um, as well. So that's kind of the Medical Reserve Corps in a nutshell. We did have some references there, um, but. Um, There's a lot there, but the community is ready to respond. But and you know we want you to be ready to handle things the best way you can on your end. And then, if you're up for it, the idea of getting involved in any one of a number of those community groups, especially the MRC, um, is something that really can have a profound impact on uh, on on many people's lives in the event of uh, some of these crisis events. And during non non-crisis events too, just helping out. So, with that said, thank you all very much. If you have any questions, I'm I'm open for that. There are um, there are some brochures about the uh, MRC there. There are copies of uh, the family plan, the preparedness kit, out on the table there. And if you would like to put your name and add uh, email down on that, I can certainly send those to you electronically as well as other information that uh, might be helpful to you. So. And Judy's gonna send
0: them.
2: Outstanding, great, thank you very much. All right, so any, uh, any questions or thoughts? Yes. So I
0: have a question,
2: what do you do for the hospital? What do I do for the hospital? Right. Well, so when you think of uh, Jim Alexander, who's the, uh, who's the, the uh, coordinator, the emergency preparedness coordinator here, so he's thinking, he's thinking inside the box in outside-of-the-box sort of ways, but he's thinking about the hospital and the uh, community practices. So my role is more on the community basis. So I'm working with the local fire departments and uh, and EMT squads. I'm working with a lot of the state agencies. So I'm thinking more sort of outside of the hospital and how are we going to, you know, handle that? How are we going to make sure that we're coordinating with the hospital and really getting the best bang for our, our bucks with all the limited resources, gonna be limited, we know that. So my role is really working on the preparedness concepts outside of the hospital. So the MRC is one of the things that I do, um, but I do a lot, of, uh, a lot of planning work, I run uh, the, um, the school flu clinics in the fall, um, and so uh, it, it keeps me fairly busy.
0: Would you be that con- contact person if we were on that initial state um, emergency command sort of situation. Are you our liaison with, with the state agencies
2: or with the town agencies? We, uh, so I might I would be one of the potential people that would be the liaison from that MACE, that multi agency coordinating entity. Mm-hmm. It's a mouthful, but that one actually makes sense when you think about the multi-agency coordinating entity. That's what it's really doing. Um, but so I, might, I, I, will be, I would be part of that. I might be in the liaison position or it might be somebody else. But uh, there's a drill coming up uh, this spring. I'm working with Jim and some others on uh, as, as part of that. And part of that will be communication with the MACE. We will be setting up the MACE in town. And uh, there will be uh, certain pieces of information that we need to make sure to get transferred appropriately to make sure that we're able to do that because until you try you just don't know so all right well thank you all very much really appreciate it thank you